Welcome to the Missio Day podcast. Missio Day is a family of Jesus, joining God as he makes all things new in Chicago. Check us out online at missiodaychicago.com. We're going to talk about something we've been talking about more or less the last few weeks, which is this idea of renewal, right? Springtime in Chicago is one of the best times to talk about renewal because we're hungry for it after such a long winter, right? We already tasted a little bit of like first summer a couple weeks ago. We had like five or six 80 degree days. I almost pulled out the AC units, but then we had winter again. And now I don't know where we are. I think you can call this spring in Chicago, right? Who knows what tomorrow will hold. Uh, The last few weeks, Melissa has been talking about this new life coming from daffodils and magnolia trees. She's been showing us these photos of of trees. What kind of tree is that? Yeah, dogwood and magnolia. I don't know much about these, but beautiful. You see this transition from death to life. And what I love about this image is it shows us sometimes renewal is just natural. It just happens. You don't really have to do anything. You don't have to go water the tree. It just blooms. At least that's how it seems to our eyes. But sometimes renewal takes hard work. Sometimes renewal is less like a blossoming tree. And it's a lot more like taking care of a fussy houseplant, right? They have to be watered, but not too much. They need sunlight, but not too much sunlight. Who here has killed their fair share of succulents? I mean, come on. Those things are impossible to keep alive, right? Uh, I have a couple in my office that are probably going to be gone in the next few months here. I just leave them and see what happens. Like, water when I feel like it and hope for the best. But these houseplants, right? They, they need a lot more work than the magnolia tree. And the reality is that renewal is just like that. It's a both and. It's both effortless and it's hard work. It's both something that happens to us and something that we have to work toward. That's what Paul, I think, is getting at throughout this book of Ephesians. He encourages the church, like we read last week, to grow, to mature, to be built up in love. And today we're going to look a little bit about how that can actually happen. How can we grow and be built up to maturity in love through this process that Paul talks about of putting off the old self and putting on the new self through the renewal of the mind. First, I want to just remind us a little bit about the context of this letter. Paul's writing to a church in Ephesus. That's the city where this uh, church, this local body of believers, the Ephesians were. And Ephesus was a city, a secular city, not unlike Chicago in many ways, where violence, sexual immorality, and moral relevance relativism were the norm in that culture. Their culture was permeated by these identity-shaping stories from Greek and Roman gods and goddesses, Zeus, Hera, and Artemis, and many others. Artemis, though, in particular, shaped the culture of the Gentile Ephesians. She was known as the reigning goddess of Ephesus. She was this hypersexualized fertility figure who was on public display in the city. And a key theme throughout the book of Ephesians is the unity that Christ makes popular between two very different groups of people. Many of the folks who made up the body of believers in Ephesus were Gentiles. They were Gentiles. Unlike their new Jewish brothers and sisters, they didn't grow up praying and reciting the Psalms or reading wisdom from the book of Proverbs or learning about the prophetic history of their people, Israel. Rather, they they didn't learn like the, the moral 
depth of the Jewish culture that would have just been second nature to their Jewish brothers and sisters. They may not have even been familiar with the Ten Commandments. Sure, they had their philosophers, they had their educated elites and and moral and wisdom literature, absolutely. But the Gentile culture of of the church in Ephesus, religion and morality did not mix. Not only that, but many of the Ephesian Christians were simply put just common people, many of them unschooled, and and even many of them a considerable slave population. So what Paul is writing to these non-Jewish newcomers to the faith, he's trying to paint a picture for them about what their faith can actually look like in practice. It looks a lot different from the culture in which they grew up. Here's how Paul paints a picture of the Gentile culture in Ephesus. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of their ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity and they are full of greed. This is the culture that Paul is trying to call out here. A culture given over to sensuality and overindulgence. A culture of extreme greed that had taken over many people's lives. A culture where all All kinds of impurity were easy to find. It's no wonder that Paul tells the Ephesian church that they must no longer live as the Gentiles do. The culture Paul described here is not just some theoretical picture of sin or wrong behavior out there. No, he's talking about a way of life that these Ephesians actually used to live. He's painting a picture more than just occasional bad behavior, but an all-encompassing identity. What he would call later in verse 22, their former way of life, their old self. Not just how they used to live, but who they were before. Before they chose to follow Jesus together. That's the thing about culture. Inevitably, our identity is a byproduct of the culture in which we're placed. There's this silly parable that David Foster Wallace tells in his commencement speech at Kenyon College from 2005. It's an amazing speech. And he opens basically talking about two young fish who are swimming along in the water, right? And they happen to meet an older fish who's swimming the other way. And as the older fish passes, he nods at them and says, morning, boys, how's the water? And the two young fish just kind of keep swimming on for a bit and then eventually one of them looks at the other one and goes what the heck is water right that's what culture is it's it's the water that we're swimming in and most of us are like fish who don't even know that we live under water right that's exactly what Paul is trying to call out in the Gentile culture of Ephesus it would be so easy for them after they became Christians to just keep living the way they always did and let Christianity be an optional add-on to their normal lives we face this temptation as well. Christianity, no matter what, always exists within a culture, within a specific context of people, at a specific time in history, and in a specific place. The Ephesians were trying to figure out what does it look like to follow Jesus in this culture of greed, lust, impurity, and darkness, right? Our culture 
may not seem as bad, but we too have to navigate. We have to navigate what following Jesus looks like here and now in this culture where we've been placed, right? The problem comes in when the cultural norms of any given society or culture seem to directly contradict the good news of Jesus, right? What, what was that for the Gentile Ephesians, right? It was these aspects of their culture that contradicted the way of Jesus, this all too common practice of corruption, of greed, of gossip, of lying in an attempt to gain power. What are the aspects of our culture that contradict the way of Jesus? Can you think of any? Here's a few that come to mind for me. Workaholism, burnout culture, and careerism. Hookup culture and an obsession with sex. Political polarization. Ideological idolatry. Hyper-individualism. Consumerism. You can keep the list going in your head. You see, Christianity must exist within a culture. But when that culture overtakes and distorts the way of Jesus, it often causes us to turn back to our old self, our old identity, our old way of life. And here me. I'm not trying to promote some kind of culture war, Christianity, or an us versus them mentality. Rather, we must become people of discernment, people who are wise to mix metaphors, people who can eat the meat and spit out the bones of the cultural waters that we're swimming in. Here's a quick example that might flesh this out a little bit for us here and now. Uh, In a modern urban city like Chicago, the hustle is real, right? We're all hustling, we're all working hard, And the cultural norm for many of my friends in the workplace, at least, is that they will be rewarded for working longer days, responding to emails late into the night, even working on Saturdays and Sundays. And while their office may claim to give them unlimited PTO, we all know that if they're gunning for that raise or that promotion, they need to work as many days out of the year as possible. The way of Jesus, on the other hand, is a culture of Sabbath rest. It's a culture that goes against the grain of our burnout culture, right? It's a culture that prioritizes rest and time off and time to be with God. It's not that we need to reject the entirety of the culture that we've been placed in or of our cultural identity and heritage. Absolutely not. There are always beautiful and good aspects of a given culture, but we need to discern what are the aspects of our culture that are distorting or at the very least distracting us from what it looks like to follow the way of Jesus. Just like the Ephesians, we too need to learn how to put off that old self in order to put on the new self in Christ. Let's look at verses 20 to 22. That, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires. The culturally distorted way of life that the Ephesians once lived stands in stark contrast to the way of life that they have learned in Jesus. This is important for us to recognize. Paul's not here being legalistic or trying to get non-believers to change their behavior before they follow Jesus or belong to the local church. Absolutely not. Paul's entire argument hinges on the fact that he's writing to people who are already committed disciples that have changed 
chosen to live the way of Jesus. They didn't just learn ideas about Jesus. They've met him and they desire to follow him. I love this simple quote from Eugene Peterson. He says, the Christian life does not start with moral behavior. We don't become good in order to get God. We don't become good in order to get God. All too often, Christianity becomes a form of legalistic behavior modification rather than a compelling vision of the new life that is available to us in Christ. Without an, encon- without, like, an actual encounter with the good, beautiful, true person of Jesus and his way of life, we have no choice but to see this passage as just a list of do's and don'ts. Don't do this. Don't be like that. Do this instead, right? And that leads us to this mistaken idea that if we follow the rules, then we can get access to God's love and forgiveness. No, rather, Paul is not teaching that. He's reminding the Ephesians and ultimately us of why we're even Christians in the first place. We've witnessed firsthand the good news of Jesus. We've seen the life that is on display in Christ, this life of love, peace, joy, and gentleness. We've seen what this kind of love can do to a person and we want in on that kind of life. But we can't do this on our own. We need help swimming against the current of our cultural norm. Thankfully, Paul begins to shift from this negative, don't do this, and he shifts to a positive in verses 22 to 24. I'm going to repeat verse 22, and then I'll read through 24. He says, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Paul instructs the Ephesians to put off the old self in order to put on the new. The imagery here is like taking off old clothes and putting on an entirely new outfit. The Ephesians would have been familiar with this old Roman coming-of-age ceremony that young men did as they transitioned from young men to to men, right? In this ritual, the young man puts on a, a new piece of clothing, a toga to be exact, which highlights his entrance into to maturity and manhood and and equips him and it encourages him to live out this new life, his new identity of, of wisdom and virtue and manhood. Paul is expanding on this idea here for the Ephesians as they enter into a new identity. They put off their old self, take off their old clothes and put on new ones which symbolize their new identity. It's not just a new set of clothes or a new outfit but an entirely new identity. And this new identity leads to transformation from the inside out. In her commentary on the book of Ephesians, Lynn Kohook said this, this new self must act in ways consistent with its new identity. In other words, how we live on the outside is an overflow of who we are on the inside. Look at this vivid picture Paul paints of the contrast between the old and new self. Look at this. While the old self was full of darkness and separated from the life of God, the new self is full of light and created to be like God. The old self was ignorant, hard-hearted, and angry 
country, but the new self is kind, compassionate, and peaceful. The old self was full of impurity, corruption, and greed, but the new self is righteous, holy, and generous. The old self spread lies, gossip, and slander, but the new self speaks only words of encouragement, forgiveness, and love. The difference is undeniable. Paul is describing two completely different kinds of people. And yet, short of some kind of psychological miracle, people don't change overnight. Greedy people don't just flip a switch and suddenly become generous. People who go to bed angry every night don't just wake up one morning suddenly at peace. TMZ or Access Hollywood can't just switch from spreading the hottest celebrity gossip one day to all of a sudden speaking only words of encouragement and love. And if they did, we'd probably all stop watching it. But seriously, how can these Ephesians go from this seemingly impossible shift from darkness to light, from corruption to holiness, from anger to forgiveness? What is the process by which they put off this old self and put on the new self? Well, the key that unlocks the door and makes this transformative process possible is found in verse 23. Verse 23, the NIV translates it like this. Be made new in the attitude of your minds. I was also looking up other translations, and I like the New Revised Standard Version. says, be renewed in the spirit of your minds. That helps us see a little bit more what's going on here. But lastly, I, I really like this translation from the New Testament scholar Gordon Fee. He translates verse 23 like this. Be renewed in your minds by the spirit, by the spirit. Each of these translations helps us see a little bit what it looks like to put on the new self. Putting on the new self begins when our spirit joins with the Holy Spirit for the renewal of our minds. The key that unlocks this transformative process is the Holy Spirit. Renewal of the mind and eventually the entire person is possible only by the power of the Holy Spirit. And while this renewal is first and foremost the Holy Spirit's action in us, right, like that magnolia tree we saw that that just transformed the holy spirit also invites us to participate in this process of renewal I think Holy Spirit uh, sometimes is a, is a person we don't fully have a picture of in our minds. We don't really know what the Holy Spirit does. And so I found this simple quote from Eugene Peterson, again, really helpful. He says, the Holy Spirit is God present with us, making us personal participants in all his work, empowering us to be present in all his work. The only way the Ephesians can live out this renewed life is through the Holy Spirit's powerful renewal of their minds, but it requires their participation. The same is true for you and me. Why this emphasis on the renewal of the mind? Why are we so focused on the mind? Well, because at the end of the day, you and I become like what we think about. Our desires, our actions, our everyday life choices flow from what occupies our minds. The mind is not only made up of what we think, it's, it's really made up of how we think, how we see, the worldview we have, how we interact with reality all around. 
around us. That's why the poet John Milton famously wrote in Paradise Lost, the mind is its own place and in itself can make a heaven of hell or a hell of heaven. How we think about God, our world, ourselves, makes all the difference in our lives. When we think wrongly about God, for example, it can have serious implications. If I was to really believe deep down that God is an angry person up there who wants to punish me when I do something wrong, then I will either end up living a very difficult life where I try not to make any mistakes, or I would just walk away from that kind of God altogether. To be renewed in our minds by the Spirit is to put on a new way of thinking about God, about ourselves, and about the world around us. Like Paul famously said in his letter to the church in Corinth, the renewed mind is the very mind of Christ. So when we talk about putting on a renewed mind, we're thinking, how would Jesus think if he were me? I want to spend a little bit of time here on this renewal of the mind. This is really where I want to hang out for the rest of our time together and make a couple quick notes about what this renewal of the mind could actually look like. First, the renewal of the mind is an ongoing, lifelong process, not a one-time event. Yes, in a certain sense, believers are already new creations in Christ, absolutely, and yet we're also called to devote our entire lives to joining the Holy Spirit in the work of renewal. The theologian Karl Barth insisted that everyone, from brand new believers to the most studied theologians to the most experienced pastors, were all at the end of the day beginners when it comes to living out our identity as children of God. The point is that none of us can become masters who don't need to keep learning or growing in our spiritual journey. Uh, I, I thought of the lyric Merck saying, as you call me deeper still, right? You call me deeper still. We're going deeper and deeper into the love of God. To be a Christian is to embark on a lifelong spiritual journey of renewal in the Holy Spirit. So that's number one. It's a it's a lifelong process, not a one-time event. Number two, the renewal of the mind is not about information alone. Doctrine is extremely important, but knowing intellectually the right things about God is not the same thing as knowing God, right? Another way to put this is there's a difference between the mind and the brain. There's a difference between the information you have and what you do with that information. The mind involves not merely thinking, but also feeling, and choosing where do we experience our emotions, yes, in our bodies and our spirit, but also in our minds. So renewal of the mind always begins by changing the way we think, but it will also change the way we feel and ultimately the life choices that we make. A lot of people, number three, a lot of people dichotomize the mind from the other parts that make up the human self, the human person. Throughout history, Christians and others, humans really, have tended to land on one side or other of this extreme. On the one side, we overemphasize the importance of the mind, right? I think of the enlightenment and this overemphasis on, on rational logic and thinking. Or we end up on the other side and we disregard the mind in its totality and life is all about experience or feeling, right? Christians, on the other hand, are called to uphold a holistic view of the human person. We see the human as one integrated self 
health made up of mind, body, and spirit. And each of those are equally as important and inseparable from the other. So please hear me. This focus on the mind is not an attempt to downplay the importance of the body or the spirit in our holistic renewal. Putting on the new self involves the entire person, mind, body, and spirit. Paul I'm quoting Paul left and right here, but he really has some good thoughts on this. Um, he he kind of invented this kind of stuff. No, but he uh, he really gets at this idea. We did a series six months ago or, or less um, about practicing our faith in our spiritual life in our bodies. And it was all based on this one passage from Romans 12 verses one and two. I'm just gonna summarize. It says, offer your bodies, your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, which is your spiritual worship. Offer your bodies as spiritual worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. For Paul, each of these aspects of the human person are connected and have to work together in this process of renewal. Lastly, this is my last bit on renewal of the mind. Joining the Holy Spirit in the renewal of the mind requires both abstinence and engagement. Abstinence and engagement. We know what those words mean. Abstinence means there's a certain things that we need to keep out of our minds. There's certain things we need to work hard to sort of curate uh, what, what goes into our consciousness, right? Um, and engagement, on the other hand, means that there are specific things that we want to bring into our minds. Here's Paul again. In Philippians 4, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Think about such things. Of course, in order to think about those things that are true and lovely and admirable, we have to avoid thinking about the things in life that aren't so lovely and admirable. If only this was as easy as it sounds, right? We have Instagram, TikTok, our news feeds, whatever you, TV, whatever it is for you, it constantly begs for our attention and makes it pretty difficult for us to actually allow our thoughts to dwell on the things of God, right? How do we begin? How do we begin to rearrange our thoughts, to curate our consciousness so that our minds can be renewed by things that are beautiful and true? Well, the Sunday school answer for this one is the right one. I don't know if you know the Sunday school answer, but it all comes back to Jesus. We fill our minds with the gospel with the life, with the teachings of Jesus, and we spend time looking at Jesus as he's depicted in the Gospels and and in his teachings. We meditate not only on information about Jesus, but on Jesus himself. Another word for this is contemplation. We don't merely study Jesus, we contemplate Jesus. And there our minds are renewed. Like a good pastor during my sermon prep this week, I Googled the word contemplation uh, because I do some serious research for these sermons. But I, but I wanted to see how, uh, how Google defined contemplation. And I know they probably drew this from Oxford or Webster, but I actually really like it. They say contemplation is the action of looking thoughtfully at something for a long time. 
looking thoughtfully at something for a long time. I'm not sure where they got that, but I really like the word thoughtfully. Thoughtfully. Contemplation requires thoughtfulness. It requires our minds to be active and present as we're contemplating Jesus and as we're contemplating the things of God that are noble, trustworthy, and lovely. Another definition of contemplation that I really like comes from a a Jesuit theologian named Walter Burghardt. This is just short and simple. He says, contemplation is a long, loving look at the real. A long, loving look at the real. When we spend time dwelling in our minds on the person of Jesus and the lovely things of God, we join the Holy Spirit in the renewal of our minds. And not only that, but we also put on the new self. We become new people because at the end of the day, we become like the things we think about. We become what we contemplate. One final verse from Paul. This is 2 Corinthians. He says, and we all, who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Holy Spirit. There's an undeniable connection between contemplation and transformation. As we contemplate the Lord, we are transformed into his image. This is why Paul begins with the renewal of the mind. And then he shows how that renewed mind will actually look in the lives of the Ephesians, how it will actually change their behavior. Remember, this isn't a list of do's and don'ts. It's a become a new person, and here's the kind of life that will flow out of your new identity. Because their minds are being renewed by the Spirit, they can be transformed into people of generosity rather than people of greed. They can be transformed from people who lie and gossip to people who speak the truth in love. They can be transformed from bitterness and anger to people of peace and forgiveness, from outrage and conflict to kindness and compassion. A transformed life flows from a renewed mind, which flows from contemplating God. If you're wondering where to begin, how does this actually work, maybe start by just reading a portion of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. You don't have to read all of them straight, but just pick a section, particularly maybe where Jesus is teaching or or working or telling a parable, and just look at what you notice about Jesus. What are you seeing about not just what he's saying or his teaching, but what kind of person was Jesus? And just slow down and meditate on those verses or on, on that part of Jesus that you're noticing. Or maybe go back to that passage in Philippians that I read where Paul is talking about whatever is true, noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, excellent, or praiseworthy. Think about those things. Maybe make a list. What are some things in your life that are are excellent or praiseworthy? Or some things about God, even better, that are excellent or praiseworthy. Just spend some time. Maybe start where you're at. Maybe it's five minutes. Maybe it's 10. Maybe it's 15. Just spend some time dwelling on those good things. Um, One other way to 
practice this is, a, is a, just a simple prayer. I've heard it called a lot of different things, um, but the word I've heard it called recently is beholding prayer. Beholding prayer. I think that's a nice uh, name for it. It's a very simple prayer where we just behold God, beholding you, beholding me in love. Just use your imagination to, to picture God. What is God like? You don't have to necessarily see exactly what God looks like, but what are the character or the, the things of God? Think, think love, think hope, think peace, think joy, and, and look at God. And how is God looking at you? with love. He's looking at you with hope. He's looking at you with peace. So that's contemplation. It's just a long, loving, thoughtful look at God. And contemplating God leads to the renewal of our minds, which ultimately leads to a transformed life. Let's close in prayer. God, maybe just now we slow down even and just focus our attention on you. Our attention so easily gets distracted not always by bad things, sometimes by good things, but just bring us back now to you. We just look on you, your, your face, which smiles down on us with love. Your um, identity, which is always loving, always peaceful, always full of life in moments of grief and in moments of joy your identity as our savior who walked the the way of humanity, who faced um, all the things that we face in this life that make life painful or difficult, even to the point of death. We see that Jesus, that Jesus who came to preach good news to the hurting, to preach sight to the blind, to preach um, food for the hungry. We see that Jesus. The Jesus who said, blessed are the merciful. We see that Jesus. Help us, God, see you for who you really are. And then allow your spirit to renew us, to make us new in our minds, in our bodies, in our spirits, so that we too can live this transformed life that Paul is inviting us into, this life of speaking truth to power, this life of only speaking words that build up and encourage, this life of, of not lying or gossiping, but just being present with one another in unity, really living out this bond of peace, we can't live in peace without this renewed mind. So renew us, Holy Spirit, and do what only you can do. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for tuning in. We love to keep the conversation going. Find a weekly gathering or gospel community in a neighborhood near you. To find out more, check us out online at missiodechicago.com.